Hey, this is Steve breaking into the pod before the episode starts. I wanted to let you all know about a cool thing that happened to us last week. We were ranked the number 11 podcast for public health in the nation by MPH Online, and we couldn't have done it all without you listening in. So thank you so much for helping us get as far as we have. And if you have a second, take the time to rate us wherever you get your podcasts or share it with a friend. Thank you so much, and here's our latest episode. Hello, and welcome back to From the Front Row. My name is Steve Sanye, and today we'll be chatting with Thomas Campanella. He earned his BA and MA in economics from Ohio University, along with his JD from Cleveland Marshall College of Law. As a former vice president of healthcare finance and care management at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Ohio and Medical Mutual of Ohio, Mr. Campanella was responsible for hospital and physician contracting, reimbursement, and care management. Tom was also the associate dean over clinical and community services for Ohio University's Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. A large percentage of students at OUHCOM gravitate to primary care. Also as associate dean, Tom was administrator over five clinical sites in Southeast Ohio, primarily focusing on the underserved. Finally, in his role over community services, he helped organize population health initiatives in Southeast Ohio. He currently serves as a professor at the Baldwin-Wallace University School of Business and is director of their healthcare MBA program, where he brings 35 years of experience in the healthcare industry to the table. Tom, happy to have you here today. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So today, I'd like to start off by exploring your thoughts on primary care utilization within the United States. Can you talk about the value that primary care clinicians bring to the table? Okay, Steve, uh, when you think about it, when it comes down to the real value of a primary care doc, uh, physician, is their focus, and that is focus in regards to the entire individual from a holistic perspective. And when you think about that, and you think about all the factors that impacts one's health, we're talking obviously all those clinical issues in so many different forms, but we're also talking about mental health issues, social determinants, and so many other factors. And so uh, the primary care physician is actually trained and uh, has experience to be able to sort of look at that individual, but through the lens of many other factors, including the mental health side, social determinants, and others. And, and that's really the, the key value they bring to the table. It seems like a lot when you're talking about it, you've got to have, you know, the social skills, you got to understand, you know, the mental side of things with other folks. So it seems like you're talking about a very top to bottom kind of uh, examination of the patient and their entire lifestyle. You know, obviously you want them to be there constantly or being seen routinely. So with this, uh, we know there's a shortage of primary care clinicians in the United States compared to other, you know, OECD countries, other, you know, top rate countries like our own. Can you elaborate on why uh, we don't see a lot of physicians entering into primary care? Do you think it's just about the money? Would simply paying them the same as other specialties make a significant difference in recruiting primary care physicians? Prior to, and you know, and I'm not going to try to get political here, but just from a factual standpoint, prior to uh, Medicare, 
the percentage of physicians that were in primary care was pretty close to being equal to where it is in other countries. So you had anywhere from 60, 65% of physicians prior to 1964-65 time period in primary care. The key reason um, that there was sort of a big focus on specialties really came down to the dollars, as you said, in that Medicare um, uh, reimbursement was ultimately rewarded specialties and subspecialties in a much more enhanced way than primary care physicians. And one thing I learned from my experience uh, with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Ohio is uh, most health insurance companies actually piggyback off, off of Medicare in many areas, including on the reimbursement side. So uh, many of those uh, sort of disparities from a reimbursement standpoint really started in the mid-60s. And over a relatively short period of time, as we expanded our workforce, physician workforce, more and more physicians went to, in effect, where the dollars were at, those specialties and subspecialties. And, you know, and obviously the hospitals uh, were in a position to take advantage of it. Bottom line, though, what it comes down to is, um, as it relates to primary care physicians and why we don't have enough of them now, it really is um, sort of uh, an offshoot of both of those issues. One, as it relates to income, uh, when they take a look at their long-term income projections versus other specialties, uh, they see themselves really, you know, given the time that they put into education, residency programs, and other types of focuses, which really were lost income times, you know, the payback uh, with going in the specialty route is much greater. And sadly, um, the other big part of this is the loan end of it all. And I think a lot of us are very much experienced on the undergraduate side and graduate schools about the loans, while medical school loans are even that much more greater. So you can imagine, going back to my experience with Ohio University Osteopathic Medical School, many of the young people started wanting to be in uh, primary care when they first start uh, with the medical school. But as those medical school loans start mounting up, now all of a sudden they're starting to say, well, given their family situation, because many of them may be getting married during the process or the challenges they see ahead, besides the lost income, they see the debt end of the equation. And so those two are really um, the biggest factors, you know, I think in why currently we don't have enough physicians in uh, focusing on primary care. Yeah, I would agree. I've seen that in my own cohort. And I initially started out as a human physio. I actually got my background in human physiology, my bachelor's in it. And a lot of my cohort was interested in doing uh, either medical school or PA school. But I know that once they got further into the situation, very parallel to what you said, started out thinking primary care was the way to go. And then, you know, sealing uh, the, the financial side of things it really kind of hit home for them and said, you know, this isn't a feasible option for me. And Steve, you know, there's another factor too, and, uh, and it can't be measured in dollars and cents, and that is uh, personal satisfaction. 
Mm. And the, the sad part about it is um, we have had obviously a lot of consolidation uh, as it relates to healthcare and more and more bigger healthcare systems, except for a few what I would call visionary healthcare integrated systems. Many of them have, in effect, relegated the primary care physician within their system, which is, uh, in many cases, the primary source of employment for physicians, you know, uh, getting out of medical school and residency programs, to really being a gatekeeper to the specialists, because that's where they make the money. So now, not only are you a primary care physician, in effect, not making the, the money and still having those loans potentially, you know, as it relates to medical school, but you don't have necessarily the most satisfying role where you're not necessarily, in effect, that person that is right in the middle of that individual's care and the primary advocate. You're basically, in many cases, spinning them off to particular specialties, which, in effect, you know, yes, you get that information, but you no longer have that same uh, level of satisfaction of really being, you know, responsible for that entire person. And to that point, too, you know, I, I get what you're saying where you want to have kind of primary care. It sounds like being the captain of the ship. You want them to be kind of making the key decisions. Should you go on to do this or that? And anecdotally, I had a friend who was asking me, you know, why do I need to see a primary care specialist? if I know that I have a problem with say a shoulder or a joint or a foot or an ankle for the public perspective, how do you uh, kind of say we should be seeing primary care rather than jumping to a specialist instead? Well, first of all, your shoulder, ankle, liver, you know, whatever it happens to be, is all connected to one person. And that's really where the primary care uh, physician provides that value because bluntly too, you know, depending on where that individual went, they may be a narrow focus in regards to, um, you know, okay, you need to get this surgery, you need to do this or that. Well, the primary care physician, while they may uh, obviously refer to that particular specialist, will also take a look at that person individually. And really from an advocacy and really knowing that individual may say, okay, you know, Part of the reason why you're having these shoulder issues besides everything else may do be due to your lifestyle, may be due to your weight, may be due, due to uh, other types of issues, you know, depending on what the situation is. But the point is, they are able to sort of bring in all of those aspects and really be that individual. And, on, and by the way, as an aside, the other key point is that when you go to that specialist eventually, you've got to make sure, and that's why you need that hub and spokes approach, that mm -hmm. that specialist is actually referring the information or sending that information back to your primary care doctor uh, so that they're not, in effect, uh, left in the dark. Yeah, that communication aspect is really important. That was the point that I kind of drove home on is, you know, it is a system. It is just not these ideas of silos where you've got your silo of primary care, your silo of this, and kind of building into that, you, one of your articles that you've written on, you make a call to action for uh, primary care physicians to enter these healthcare leadership roles. And one of the comments I really was interested in is you say, as a result of that individual drive within many physicians, 
you kind of operate in a silo and you have a difficult time walking in the shoes of other healthcare stakeholders. So more specifically for primary care students, but even medical students in general who are considering other degrees in healthcare management and policy, what can they kind of expect to get by looking into those other venues to kind of understand other healthcare stakeholders' perspectives? Well, first of all, I want to set the stage for my comment, and that is, uh, I am an, as you went through my bio, uh, you didn't hear anything in there about, oh, and Tom went to medical school, or Tom has, uh, you know, a strong science background. I'm not a clinician, and um, at the same time, as an aside, uh, probably 20% of my students in the healthcare uh, MBA type program that we have at Baldwin-Wallace are physicians. Where, where I'm coming from in this is that there's um, a recognition that we, especially us non-physicians, us uh, non-clinical people, really put physicians on a pedestal. And at various stages, it could be that medical student, it could be that individual that has decided they want to go down that healthcare or uh, physician road in uh, undergraduate school. It could be the physician themselves. You are the brightest of the bright. Uh, you've been probably focused and driven all your life in different ways. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why you've been so successful. So when you think about it, you've been able to combine your intelligence with a strong drive and focus and which is all terrific. The big negative in that, if I want to put it bluntly, is that you do have is the words drive and focus. And the focus sometimes can be narrow. And the focus can be, you know, your particular career, your particular area of interest. But there needs to be a recognition that you no matter what area you're in from, you know, the undergrad or the medical student or the physician are part of a bigger world, our, our society. And you're also impacted by many other factors, including health policy, including uh, the business side of health care, health insurance companies, you know, the consumer, you name it. And so the point is where I'm really, uh, where I'm really going with this is that you have the power and the intelligence to be able to really have an impact. But to be able to have that impact uh, and, in effect, leadership to really do something about it, you need to be able to have both a sense of accountability and responsibility. And, you know, because that comes with leadership. And with that, you know, to be able to have accountability and responsibility, You've got to have, uh, you know, additional skills beyond those clinical skills, and you've got to have knowledge outside of the world that maybe you operate in. And a lot of that is from the external world. You know, what's happening at uh, state and national health policy, the business side of healthcare, what employers are struggling with from a cost standpoint, the sensitivity of access to care issues in so many different communities. When you're able to walk in other people's shoes from all those different perspectives, that puts you in a much better position to not only be sensitive to those needs, but also in a position to maybe have much more of a positive impact. And going back to what I said earlier, given the fact that physicians are put on a pedestal, 
if you indeed are placed in that leadership role, because when you think about our healthcare system that we operate in today and you say, who in effect created it, that physicians operate in and people achieve care in, it really was created by, in many ways, politicians, you know, at both the state and federal level, because, you know, so much of healthcare is regulated. It's created by, uh, in so many different ways, health insurance companies or hospitals and executives in it. And physicians can choose to say, okay, I'm just going to be a clog or in effect operate in a system that somebody else created. Or they can say, you know, we have both the ability, interests, and, and should have, in effect, that responsibility and accountability to say, no, we're not going to do that. We want to play leadership role. We need to get more involved in the policy side at the federal and state level. We need to be much more involved on, in either working with health insurance companies or setting and, and addressing policy issues or being leadership roles in hospitals and other ways, and also, and ultimately do that in a very responsible way. But that's where they gotta have the knowledge, they gotta be able to understand those issues, the business side and everything. And that just doesn't start when you're the 45-year-old physician. It starts if, uh, you know, if people listening to this are in undergraduate school and they're on a healthcare track, or they're in medical school, Part of that knowledge base outside of their world starts now in the readings that they have or courses, depending on what it is, or curiosity or questions that they ask. So it really needs to start at a very early age. And I think that's a tremendous task to take on too right now. I mean, that is a, it's a lot of information, but it is formative, right? It is, you, you know, the foundations of how you want to practice, how you want to operate. I know that you know, clinicians bring in their own perspective, values, ideations, but I think you really do hammer home correctly on the point of uh, you can choose to be passive or active within the system, um, but moving towards an active uh, role contributes to that healthcare disruption that we see, you know, thrown about a lot. That's how we see things change often for the better. With regards to, you know, independent practicing physicians versus hospitals, we know that, you know, in general, maintaining a practice can be complex. And then on top of all this other stuff that we're talking about with soft skills or knowledge of, you know, national, local, federal policies, et cetera, it can be kind of difficult and time consuming to stay ahead, to stay up on the curve. When physicians are kind of looking to become leaders, to take this next step into becoming more active, how can they understand the issues of other practices when they can become, you know, situational, unique, regional? When we're looking at leadership, is it supposed to be philosophical or is it supposed to be practical? Well, a couple of things. First of all, there are a lot of resources out there from different perspectives. So, for example, I just recently spoke uh, in Nashville, uh, of course, Good thing we did this a few weeks ago because, you know, given what's happened with all the conferences and coronavirus, you know, they're just not having them. But I spoke at the uh, MGMA conference, which is the Medical Group Management Association, which is an association which provides resources, including knowledge in that, to both physicians and physician practices to be able to, in effect, 
better run and sort of survive and provide value in these, especially these disruptive times. Uh, there's also local, uh, state, and national medical societies that are a resource of information, and they're becoming more and more active. And part of that is the uh, individuals that are in it need to demand that information. A lot of, you know, obviously, especially with online tools and that, uh, including things like podcasts, there's creative ways to be able to increase your knowledge, not just for the physician, but if you happen to be in the practice, you got to, right from the beginning, start a culture within your particular physician practice that everybody, I don't care if it's the person answering the phone, the social worker that's involved in it, the medical assistant, the physician assistant, the nurse practitioner, uh, the secretary, you name it, it's, you're sort of like all in it together and everybody should have a role in increasing their knowledge in regards to ensuring that the practice that they have can uh, not only succeed financially, but, but provide better value for their patients. And so everybody, if they take ownership, then that whole knowledge side of the equation in different forms, I think really helps out too. And then the other part of it too, there's a lot of potential collaborators out there within the community or that, that recognize and want to be in effect in different ways, partners with physician practices. Anything from nonprofit organizations, uh, public health organizations, there's collaborative type organizations that are out there that are, are, and then over and above that, there's organizations from the business side, from technology companies to all, all other types that are willing to partner and collaborate with physician practices, not only to help provide enhanced knowledge, but potentially enhanced skills or different types of innovative approaches to provide better care, including as it relates to telemedicine, where partnerships, instead of looking at physician practices as telemedicine as a competitor, uh, potentially opportunities to be able to collaborate in, in ways to provide better quality care for their patients. And it's good that you hit on the telemedicine point too. One of the concepts we have here is the worry about supplanting local physicians rather than supplementing them with telemedicine. It's the idea of we want to make sure that we're um, doing this as a collaborative mutual effort. And we're seeing this especially coming about now as it relates to you know, the pandemic that's going on. With your experience and views, with telemedicine be adopted further and further, should telemedicine physicians be paid the same as hands-on clinician physicians? Well, I think it's all about value when you think about it. You know, it's back to basic economics. You get paid for the value you provide. So obviously, the more enhanced value that uh, telemedicine can provide in the physicians that are in it, you know, in regards to addressing the needs of the patient, then from a, quote, financial standpoint, they should be, you know, rewarded accordingly. It's really challenging to give generalizations. Just like you're in a position to say, uh, when you're talking about hands-on physician practices, there's uh, a whole uh, range of quality from poor to excellent in regards to being able to provide value to the patient. Well, the same thing uh, as it relates to the telemedicine side, where there is a broad range. There's telemedicine companies 
or even entities that will hire a telemedicine company strictly as uh, a short-term way to sort of try to capture a patient, uh, get some information, and then basically send that patient, you know, ultimately to a lot of specialists to get care. So for an example, what we were talking about earlier in regards to potential abuses of primary care. A hospital, major hospital system that utilizes telemedicine physicians uh, as it relates to uh, interacting with potential patients in their homes and that. And if the primary focus is to, quote, uh, get reimbursement dollars for that telemedicine visit, and then ultimately do that sort of quick, um, you know, sort of focused response to their needs, and then say, okay, now we need to refer you to this specialist or that specialist. I think there's not only less value, but there should be less rewards in regards to the individuals or organizations involved in that. Because they're really truly not being a patient advocate. They're truly not establishing a relationship with that individual. They're really not providing uh, sort of that necessary uh, trust relationship that occurs. Where I really, Steve, where I really think uh, a lot of value, untapped value is out there, is when um, physician practices recognize and utilize telehealth and telehealth physicians in a collaborative way and potentially at a better way to serve their patients. So when you think about a doctor seeing a patient in their office and then they uh, meet with them about a particular health issue, maybe it's diabetes, and part of that relates to their diet, exercise, you know, understanding the issues and that, and compliance, you know, ultimately. Then that person leaves the office and goes back to their home setting. Well, if the next time you see them is three months later, there's a strong likelihood that any issues that you're addressing with diabetes are still going to be there. But if you can partner or find ways to more effectively use something like telemedicine, and then all of a sudden that individual is getting advice either directly from physicians or it could be a nurse practitioner or others that helps one uh, in the home setting allow them to have a better understanding of what their health issues are and you know, educate them, maybe enhance the likelihood of adherence, uh, maybe connect with them in a much more uh, ongoing way, or maybe using things like uh, also tying it into videos or other forms of communication that would enhance education, adherence, you know, and other types of things to ultimately focus on this individual being healthier. When you have that sort of uh, partnership I think uh, a lot of great things can result. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think you hit on a really another good point there, Tom, about use of advanced practice providers in this physician assistants, nurse practitioners. One you know, formula I've come up kind of in my head mimics the food pyramid setting where you've got the physician up at the top. We see them if it's very necessary, you know, high, high acuity, or if you have to do conversely that introductory um, patient establishment visit for that, you know, patient provider relationship. But I'm in my head, I'm thinking, you know, the majority of these visits should be seen by 
PAs, NPs, they help drive down costs. They understand kind of the same either medical or nursing model. You know, where do you see the opportunities and challenges for using these professions as they kind of become um, more apparent on the medical scene? Well, the challenge, and it is definitely a challenge, at the state level, Steve, there's nothing more political uh, as it relates to state legislators than it comes down to particular areas fighting over scope of practice because it really comes down to, you know, a revenue issue or whatever it happens to be. So uh, there's battles all the time between, you know, uh, physician assistant associations at the state level, you know, nurse practitioner groups, family medicine groups, and everybody's scrambling to, to make sure that their piece of the pie isn't touched. And, you know, and that relates to, you know, the whole scope of practice. And as you said, there's both in that debate, there's both uh, challenges and opportunities. I think there needs to be, uh, and this is where you have more of a global perspective looked at, you know, as it relates to, for example, at the state level and recognize the importance of all the particular players in this. And, you know, the advanced practice providers, as well as the primary care physicians. Ultimately, the primary care physician is, has the training and experience to do much more than a nurse practitioner, for an example. Mm-hmm. They've been in for many more years in regards to the training part, but that doesn't discount the value of a nurse practitioner. And, uh, and in partnership, there's a lot that can be done. And as you said, there is sort of like a food chain in regards to what makes sense for uh, nurse practitioners to do versus primary care. So, you know, the challenge will be finding that proper balance. And there isn't necessarily an exact formula, but there needs to be ultimately uh, sort of from an umbrella standpoint, a recognition with all of these different groups that, you know, going back to cost, access, and quality, we need to find ways to work together. There is enough need for primary care and to work together in regards to addressing all those access needs that we have out there in society, all the cost challenges that we're having, but also the quality side of the equation. And so rather than sort of pitting each other against each other, I really would love to see these different groups work together in a much more collaborative fashion to model something, and they're in the best position to do this, that makes sense for everybody, but especially patients in society. And then finally, you know, healthcare is local. So if you're talking about a rural area, you know, in certain states, it may make sense that, you know, a nurse practitioner's role may be much more expanded because you just need to be there versus a role maybe in a bigger city. All these considerations need to be looked at. Yeah, and I think that ties together nicely the need to collaborate once again. Like you're talking about with these professions, everyone wants a piece of the pie, everyone wants a seat at the table. And at the same time, we do have to balance this idea of being resource conscious. I think that's another thing to highlight too within this whole pandemic situation with COVID. You know, we were realizing that we don't have the resources to take care of everyone. And we need to be able to be conscious both in a fiscal sense and in a resource sense 
and when we're seeing this all coming about, do you think that you know convening situations like this pandemic will spur healthcare stakeholders to become more conscious of what's going on, to become more conservative with what they're doing? Well, it's a combination of things. First of all, I definitely want to say, and obviously in the roles that I've had over the years, including now, I've had uh, so many, so much interaction with the healthcare provider side. And during this time of crisis, in, you know, across the society, you know, I think we all owe, um, you know, uh, so much to these providers that are literally on the front lines. You know, we talk about the firemen in, uh, you know, in California that mm-hmm. are fighting the fires in the forests and that, and they're right there, you know, saving, trying to save people's lives and at the same time putting their own life in, in, in jeopardy. Well, in many ways, this is definitely a parallel to what's going through now. And our providers are putting themselves on the line in, in so many different roles, either directly or indirectly. So from that end, you know, I definitely want to, you know, applaud this. But as you said, you know, uh, we want to learn from these experiences too. And yes, there's a lot of negatives um, and we're only and it's easy to focus on the negative side of what we're going through right now with the coronavirus and that. But we also it's uh, hopefully will be sort of a wake up call that uh, when we talk about things like value based care or population health mm-hmm. or uh, community health that uh, or evolving from a sick care system to a health system that it's not just uh, words or slogans, that we really now have to have much more of a proactive role, that we gotta look at healthcare outside of the walls of a hospital and into the community. And from a payment standpoint and how we pay for things, you know, it has to be much more focused, not just on value, but in effect, keeping people healthy in different forms. And uh, so hopefully this will be a wake-up call that, and we have to have, and the other point, and this is one of the reasons why we're having some challenges right now, is that we can't just have a short-term budgetary look at what's happening in healthcare. We have to have a long-term strategic focus. And we, you know, because issues like this, this won't be the last time something like this happens. And that's a very good, concise point. We are at the systems that we're at right now is how prepared we're going to be, but this will happen again. You know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so getting us prepared or taking the next steps, I think this will be a really good period for reflection on on all the stuff we've talked about today, but also, you know, what we see happening on a day-to-day basis, both in the public health sector, um, but also in the medical sector. So I I really want to thank you for your thoughts on those items. With all your years of experience in healthcare, 35 years, kind of thinking back on it, was there something that you thought you knew but were later wrong about in the process of things? Well, you're really testing me there. And um, obviously, there's uh, where do I start? You know, it's probably one of the things. And I, you know, if you're really focusing on one, it really more is uh, something that is a little bit more recent. And we just talked about it. And that is this whole telemedicine side. Because when I first, I actually, um, when I was running the um, healthcare clinics in the underserved area of Athens, Ohio, 
we had five counties in southern Ohio and southeast Ohio that are some of the poorest in the United States. Uh, the, big, the big city, if you want to call it Columbus, was probably uh, at minimum at that time about an hour and a half drive. And so needless to say, we had counties in that area where there were no physicians, uh, counties that there was no hospitals because, you know, you literally, we had to sort of deliver care in many ways by, um, in effect, a large RV and uh, where we would have medical students and a nurse practitioner and maybe a doc here and there that periodically would go out there. Well, the point is we just started to touch at that period of time something called telemedicine. And, uh, and we weren't ready for it because um, we didn't know how to pay for it, you know, the Medicare and Medicaid and everything else. And my initial thought was, yes, I could see the value, but the challenge, you know, all I, in many ways, I just saw the challenges of it. And I wasn't quite sure if it was going to really amount to anything. And I was also concerned, going back to what we even talked about earlier, that it would just be used as sort of a, a narrow focus revenue producer on the part of uh, some of the bigger players. And what I'm starting to see, as we again talked about today, the potential for value in the whole area of telemedicine, especially in collaboration with other entities, and if used the right way. So that sort of opened my eyes. And one thing you recognize, and I think we see it even outside of healthcare, when Thomas Friedman was just talking about this the other day, uh, the reporter for uh, New York Times, he was saying that, yes, you know, we have the multiplier effect occurring in regards to the coronavirus. You know, from that end, it's uh, sort of almost like a doomsday, you know, every day it doubles. But the other multiplier going any other way are the, the advances in science and discovery and technology that is occurring. Uh, as it relates to the coronavirus, for an example, both of those um, sort of factors are occurring simultaneously. And the question is, you know, who's going to get there first and can we help address the issue? And so where I'm going with this is that the way in sectors even outside of healthcare, I really believe in American as well as the world's ability to innovate and the ability to be able to discover and the advances of science that occurs. And now we have sort of a unified focus throughout the world to be able to address an issue. And that's where the power comes in. So telemedicine is part of that, but that's the exciting part that, you know, even through these challenging times, seeing all these players willing to work together and doing things, you know, including finally we're getting the politicians to get involved, uh, and hopefully going in the right direction is, uh, I think, a real positive sign. What I'm hitting on with that, too, as you're talking about it, is this convening force of everyone coming together, doing what we can to combat COVID, um, and just having that mutual focus, really, I think it is, right to your point, uniting all sorts of industries. You know, telemedicine has a bit to play. Primary care has a little bit to play. You know, uh, advanced practice providers have a bit to play. And, you know, I think it is going to be uh, an optimistic perspective. It's going to be exciting to see 
what comes out of this during our time? What are we going to innovate? What are we going to discover? How are we going to push each other to do better, be accountable, and then ultimately learn from this situation? I think that, I think that is a really wonderful note um, to focus on. Yeah. I think, and again, and I've, and I've said this multiple times in podcasts or blogs, is for all the people, especially a lot of the younger people, uh, this is the best time, and I don't care what role you have, to be or to get into healthcare because during disruptive times and, and the challenging times that we're facing, not just now, but in the future, those of you that can make a difference, both from a financial standpoint, will you be rewarded tenfold, but in regards to your overall satisfaction of, in effect, being part of a solution, I think um, is unbelievably rewarding. And so, you know, this is the time to embrace that challenge. This is the time to sort of look outside your silo, walk in the shoes of others, but really say, you know what? I don't care if I'm one individual or a group of people or a medical school or a, a, a bunch of people in public health, you know, darn it, we can make a difference and it's in any form and we can do it now. We don't have to wait five, 10 years from now. That's a really good rallying cry, Tom. I think that is, you know, a fantastic point. Um, you know, your, your insight into the issues and your outlook are uh, fantastic. The information and knowledge that I think I've gained along from this podcast today has been really informative. You know, it is difficult during these times to find hope or excitement or any of those things, but you hit the nail right on the head with this is a fantastic time for folks to get into healthcare to, you know, see what legacy they can craft as disruptors, as participants, and as part of the, you know, new focus on what are we going to do to solve this big issue? And I think that's always uh, something that comes back to us as, as the world, but also as Americans is, you know, we're going to climb any obstacle, you know, we're going to overcome this all together. So I want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast today and, and for chatting with us about all these issues. Steve, I really enjoyed the opportunity and feel free to get back to me again. Our episode this week was hosted, edited, and produced by Steve Sonye. To get in touch with us, please reach out to cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This is Steve Sonye signing off for this week. <laughs>